Hello, I'm Bill Sisson, the Executive Director of WBCSD North America, and welcome to another edition of Transformative Leadership in Business. We at WBCSD, with our over 200 companies that are sustainability leaders, believe our role is to provide the how-to ingredients of critical transformations needed around the climate, nature, and equity imperatives. Learning from transformational leaders is vital to understanding the role business leadership will play in these outcomes. So today I'm joined by John Moore, the CEO of Bloomberg NEF. Thank you, John, for joining me today. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. You know, today we'll be introducing the listeners to the wealth of research analysis, expert knowledge and insights that Bloomberg NEF provides on the variety of sector areas that ultimately contribute to the global energy transition. This is going to be critical to achieve our vision of a world where 9 billion people can live well within the planet's boundaries by mid-century. As we get started, John, I know you've personally been on your own journey, and I'm sure our listeners would be really interested to hear how you've come to lead this very important business at Bloomberg. And in your own right, you're a transformational leader. How about sharing a few perspectives that can tell us how you've come to where you are? So it started 1986, actually, Big Bang, the city of London when they deregulated and uh, US companies and other companies were allowed into that market. And I joined a little company called JP Morgan. They were one of the first through the door. And so they hired me uh, into the metal options business actually. And I spent a few years there. I spent a few years at Accenture. And then I spent a few years essentially co-founding and building management consulting business for a decade. So I did 20 years essentially helping investment banks grow, helping them process derivatives and those kinds of things and really add technology into their businesses. So they really did transform themselves over that 20 years. And then after doing that for 20 years, uh, it was time to move on. And that's how I got into energy. It was obvious in 2007, 2008, that actually climate was going to be a big deal. It's very complicated. It's going to be a huge transformational issue. And that's really when I got involved with the new energy finance as a small company. And then we sold that to Bloomberg the very beginning of 2010. And that's how Bloomberg uh, NEF came about. That is fantastic. It sort of feels like you were really at the early days of this transition. And yeah, as you mentioned, the complexity that you knew you were getting into. Let's talk a little bit about that. This energy transition is truly complex. And I'm sure you know better than me involves so many different elements from the commodities to the sectors to enabling technologies. Can you talk a bit about how you frame the energy transition at Bloomberg NEF so that you can provide that critical information? information and analysis needed that improves your reader's understanding, your consumer's understanding, ultimately, and the action that needs to be taken. As you said, Bill, it is complex. So there's 33 different sort of moving parts that we that we track. Some of those are today's energy intensive commodities so across oil and gas, the economics of coal, which you really do need to understand, power, carbon, metals, chemicals, etc. So really, you have to understand how the world is wired today you have to really understand the starting point. So we have a good handle on that, and particularly on structurally what would need to change in the energy transition. And then we look across the sectoral transitions for power, transport, industry and buildings, and a bit more recently, sort of agriculture and land use. And that's 100% of emissions. So the idea is to look at each of those and look at four or five transformational technologies, so things like wind and solar and batteries in the power sector, for example, 
plus some of the cross-cutting technologies. So we look at you know, digital, we look at CCUS, we look at hydrogen, we look at bioenergy. And really, it's how does all that come together to create some options for clients? And then we have a few lenses we look at. One, we look at the technology, but we also look at the policy side of it. So you really have to understand the policies and how they're incentivizing or not these different technologies. We look at costs. Um, the costs of technologies and particularly the forecasting of those costs, because that's been a big deal. So things with steep learning curves are going to get cheaper in the future. So they may be out of the money now, but these could be the winning technologies in the future. And then finally, we think about the customers and consumers and what is it they're going to buy and how they're going to buy that. That is an incredible depth of analysis you must go through to represent well. And I know you you all do some amazing work in sort of bringing a lot of those subjects that you just outlined to reality and to life. Those four areas, power, transport, buildings, industry, and agriculture land use, we see those as sort of the big deal topics as well that we call the pathways for transformation. So certainly spot on. I think one of those sectors that I was recently given a chance to speak to was the oil and gas sector, where we were talking about advancing their environmental and social performance. And I basically had the opportunity to tell them that this transition is really about future-proofing their business. So delving a bit deeper into this sector and with that increased awareness that energy security is playing out in the global markets today, probably intensifying the need for this energy transition discussion to take place. Can you unpack for us a little bit the oil and gas sector itself, perhaps how you see the progress taking shape and maybe even outline as an example some of the transition risks or challenges that you're picking up on? What we've started to do is really look at the transition and transition risks across different industries. So oil and gas, mining and metals, utilities, and then really start to hone in on the different aspects of those industries. So on oil and gas, there's sort of two buckets. One is the sort of current exposure of the business model. So what businesses do these oil and gas companies have? Is it mainly upstream? Is it mainly downstream? Are they more integrated? Etc. So that's about a third of the things we look at, and we break out the revenue that they have across their different segments. And then two thirds of it is looking at their business model adaptation, we called it. So it's how well placed are they to adapt? Because companies could start in a bad place, but be extremely well positioned to adapt. And companies could start in a great place, but be heading in the wrong direction. And on the business model adaptation, we look at things like capital allocation. So how much are they allocating into these? new growth, clean businesses, particularly around scalable sort of existing technologies as well as early stage, and also how forward-looking their management is. So we take a look at that. Are they looking at things like TCFD reporting, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is not an easy one to say? Are they reporting their climate risks properly and climate opportunities? So it's across those kinds of things. So there's actually about 24, 25 different data points we're gathering on the top 40 or so oil and gas companies. And that's really how we then essentially make a score out of it. And that's to allow investors to really see who's doing a good job and who isn't. And then we keep those up to date throughout the year and on an annual basis, publish those so that people can really see how people are changing. Amazing. I think probably fairly accurate then when I had the opportunity to tell them this really is about future-proofing your business models. Perhaps you've got an example you could share of something you've picked up on. 
Sure. So at the top of R41 is Shell, actually. So in terms of our view on their um, positioning for transition. And as an example, you know, literally this week, they did a $1.6 billion deal to buy Spring Energy. So it's taken their renewable energy portfolio from one gigawatt to 3.1 gigawatts. So again, their positioning and scale in what will be you know, a huge growth market, renewable power. They also have 17% of their shareholders, so up from 15%, 17% of their shareholders are in the Climate Action 100 group. So again, they have a very proactive set of shareholders. So again, that's a good thing that, that will help them transition. And also they're sitting in Holland. So the, the Dutch law is really on the side of transition. So there was a case recently, a court case ruling that they should up their ambition. So you really do have a following wind from a government policy perspective. So those, those are sort of things that indicate it's more likely that Shell will transition than a number of other companies, let's say. We call this sustainability has truly gone mainstream with these different stakeholders like the capital markets starting to impose their pressures on companies to think differently. I wonder, just to stay on the examples, if if you've seen any companies in your portfolio, the ones you're studying, actually on a journey to flip their business models from something they're in to something that they're needing to be in. Sure. So the best example probably is SK Innovation, South Korea, who've really pivoted from oil to battery manufacturing. Battery manufacturing in South Korea is a mainstream industry. And they've spent 40% of the last six years of CapEx on that pivot. So an absolutely massive investment. Just to put that in context, across the 41, on average, it's been 6.4% last year was invested in transition activities. So a 40% over a six-year period really is a massive sort of step in a new direction for, for SK Innovation. So I suppose they'd be the one that we would call out as being the most aggressive in the pivot. What an amazing story. It actually, in some sense, gives me a bit more hope coming into this discussion. I wasn't sure where I was going to end up, but that's at least a, a great piece of information to learn. And I'm sure behind that, are really the financial instruments and componentry of investments that are going to be associated with the energy transition like you're alluding to. And I recently picked up on a new piece of Bloomberg NEF research that talks about this real growth uh, that's taking place in investments in, by the capital markets, including these climate tech innovation arenas and finance. What do you see, John, as the role ultimately the finance markets are going to need to play? And knowing that there are gaps today, what do you see as the path to close them? So in terms of scale last year, so every year since 2004, we've been tracking investment in clean technologies. Last year was another record at 800 billion. So sort of about half of that going to, into renewable energy and then another 270 billion going into electric vehicles. Electric heat is now starting to attract attention, et cetera. So the good news is growth in these clean technologies continues to rise. But if we really want to hit net zero mid-century, then we have to invest 100 trillion plus, basically. So that run rate needs to double right now up until 2030 and then needs to double again. So just to give you a sense for the scale of, of sort of how we need to invest over the next 20 or 30 years. So finance is going to be absolutely critical. And then in terms of the role finance plays, there's a number of features. One is the shareholders. So, you know, they can be active shareholders. And we've seen that with things like engine number one and the Exxon board changes that they were able to support, let's say. So one is shareholders. 
investors in these companies are looking at the uh, climate risk reporting, so sort of active engagement in where they invest and where they place their dollars, let's say. Um, some of them in projects themselves. So some of the asset owners, like Canadian pension funds, are uh, investing directly in things like offshore wind. You know, the scale of those projects is huge. And so you can actually directly invest in those projects. And then a couple of other areas. The other one is VC. So again, early stage, there's a lot of technologies that will be required that aren't yet scaled out. And so a lot of R&D and VC type investment will be will be useful. And finally, the development banks, because in a lot of emerging markets, we really do want them to grow in a green way. We want green growth for those people. And that's really where the development bank can really help support that and lend their weight to entice uh, more private investment into their countries. I can clearly see the link that investors would make between the information they're going to want to see from the companies they're making choices on and marrying that to the bodies of research and analysis you're doing to make that sort of clear understanding of the value of the investments that they're willing to make and want to make and need to make, frankly. That's an important brain outcome for me in the discussion. Let's move a little bit into the idea of what lies ahead. And I wanted to preform a bit give you that chance to talk a little bit about coming off the summit you just finished up in New York City or other emerging areas of work you're considering taking on. What are those forward-looking aspects helping you to get a better sleep at night or perhaps worse, keeping you up at night? Some of the areas that are hot right now. So one, we just talked about finance and how much money needs to flow. So there is a lot of ambition and real consensus behind reaching net zero but there's a really a lack of standards right now. So on the finance side, what really needs to happen is put in place standards so that the reporting is clear and straightforward and people can invest on a level playing field. So the GFANS initiative, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, is starting to try and put in place what those frameworks should be. Mark Carney is leading that and it's asset owners saying, how can asset owners really look at these things in a clear way? How can asset managers, how can banks, how can insurance companies? So it's across the whole range of the financial industry. So I think financial standards is very important. The second thing is policy. And what we know is economics alone won't get us to net zero. We've run the numbers. We've looked at the learning curves. Even if you invest wherever it's cheap, and a lot of these clean technologies are becoming cheap and will become cheaper in the future, it still doesn't bend the curve enough. So you are going to need policy support. So that's another area where we've been looking at how do you identify really good policy? We rated the G20 and countries like Germany and France came out on top. So, and even they were at sort of 80% of what good looks like and all the way down to the bottom of 20% or so. So there's a long way to go on policy and just sharing around the globe what good looks like at a national, regional and city level is really important. So I think people are now getting more and more engaged in policy. And then there's probably two other things I would mention. One is emerging markets and the just transition, which I think is something that needs to stay on people's radar. So in all of these initiatives, we need to make sure that the globe is moving forward together. It's not just the more wealthy countries that are investing in some of these technologies. So we really do need to work out how to bring along a lot of these growth economies. That's really important. And in a similar vein, supply chains. So it's become super topical, particularly in Europe, with the dependence on Russian gas 
and now much of Western Europe trying to displace that. And I think, again, resiliency is an important thing. We've looked at clean and affordable, but it also needs to be resilient industries that we build out. And that's not something that you can fix later. It's something you need to build into the design process. And I think that's going to be one of the learnings of the last few months is that we have to be aware of the dependencies we're building in as we scale these massive new clean industries to make sure that they are stable and resilient, let's say. So I I think that's another area that got a, a lot of discussion at the summit. The train has left the station on the climate agenda. I think everyone sort of bought into the need for standards and standardization and comparable data and consistency. All of that's sort of on the table now. But emerging on the scene and quickly are the whole elements of the nature discussion. So the emergence of task force for nature disclosures is on the scene. The science-based targets for nature is on the scene. So we're seeing nature and biodiversity start to factor in because it's an integral issue with the climate agenda. And then on the other side of that is the social context of this. And I think in the energy work you do, you, you may run into the just transition conversation reflect just a couple of points on those before we wrap up. Biodiversity of agriculture, we we think are are sort of very interlinked. And we've spent maybe a couple of years looking in that space. So if you like, power was the most advanced because it's been decade plus that people have really been worrying about that. Then transport, then industry, which was hard to abate. And then actually there was the sort of almost forgotten area of agriculture and biodiversity. And so I think that area is now in catch up. I think the good news is it can learn from the other sectors. What we've seen in things like mining and metals companies that were later to the party, they have executives from oil and gas companies that say, look, I know what's going to happen here. Look, this is how to think about it. It happened to us. So this is how to sort of get with the program. So hopefully that's what happened that can happen with agriculture and biodiversity. People can say, yeah, we know what practices work. We know how it should be interlinked and can move more swiftly. But that needs to go along and, and be addressed in parallel. But hopefully there's a, there's catch up that can be done. And then on the social side, I think that just comes out in particularly in the policies, particular things like city level, just making sure that the right communities are supported with the right solutions and that government dollars and those kinds of things flow into the right place. So I don't think there's something that just needs to be always spoken about. It's always one of the topics and needs to run in parallel. And I think in that way, we can make sure that we're not just a private markets decide. It's a public-private partnership and we make sure that we're raising the boats for everybody because there's only one planet, there's only one atmosphere. Outside of visiting your website, which is rich with information that you can access and attending one of your summits, how would you recommend our listeners get more familiar with Bloomberg NEF and any ideas or thoughts to share along those lines? Probably the best way is uh, come talk to us. We support many different types of companies, financial organizations, governments. We're thinking about consumers and how they're engaged in this. So we have a a very wide lens and some of that is a client type discussion. Some of that is a partnership type discussion. So actually, I think the best thing to do is come talk to us. Always happy to share what we're thinking about, but always really happy to learn. The way we stay on the cutting edge is by asking people, where is the no research? Where are the gaps? We like to have a dialogue so people can say, look, what have you thought about this? Because if we haven't thought about it, that's great. That's something we can go and research. 
Bloomberg's in pretty much most countries around the planet. BNF is in 17 different geographies. So there'll be a, a office nearby. So if you reach out to Bloomberg, they'll be able to put you in touch with BNF and we'd love to chat. There's a BNF office near you. I really love the message you delivered, which is, yeah, we can help you, but you also help us to really broaden our horizons and understand. So the more you can engage with new clients and new areas, it benefits both sides. Well, John, this has really been a great discussion. And thank you so much for being a transformational leader at the helm of Bloomberg NEF. I picked up some words that you use and I, I found them to be fantastic. Perspective is the ultimate advantage. And you, Bloomberg NEF, turned perspective into opportunity. I really like that. Your team really is such a critical resource for folks in many of the sectors you're operating in to learn from and glean a better understanding of the energy transition journey that they may be on and, and certainly how to assess and factor in what might lie ahead. So John, thanks again. I really appreciate the time and hopefully this was beneficial to you. I know it was beneficial to me and our listeners for sure. All right. Thanks, Bill. Good chatting.